um, kind of chapter by chapter. Uh, we've been in Philippians for the last several weeks. Um, and, and so as we are working through this, as you're looking for Philippians 3, just a, just a brief means of recap. Um, remember, Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul from prison in Rome. He's writing to the church in Philippi. It's a church that he absolutely adores. Like the language and the, the emotion of Philippians is really kind of unique for Paul in his writing, where he tends to, um, to sometimes be a little harder um, on folks. He is, there's a lot of just kind of emotive language. He's writing to a people that he knows, that he loves well. Um, he planted the church roughly in 49 A.D. and now is writing in the early 60s, most likely around 62 A.D. Um, last week, we, we kind of had that hard teaching that he, he gives us in chapter 2 of that we are to do all things without grumbling, right? Because it, it reveals, um, grumbling reveals a lack of trust. It, it, it reveals a lack of trust in God's character, I mean, his timing, and, and yet he is calling the church to these, these hard things, even as he writes from difficult circumstances. And so we're going to pick up beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul continues, So finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's kind of moved back and forth, giving them personal information, updating them on situations, um, teaching and pastoring them, encouraging them. And, and we really, we get a little bit of a preacher's finally in verse one, right? So he says, finally, and then we're going to go on for two chapters. Okay. So the finally here is not like in my final, final thoughts, but it's in the last thing I'm going to bring up the last topic, right? Of, Hey, here's the last thing we're going to hit on. He says, finally, and notice that he tells them, listen, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. It's, it's an imperative. It's, it's a command. I want you to make the choice to rejoice in the Lord. Remembering that Paul is writing from prison. Remembering that his circumstances are not dictating his joy. Now listen, church, this does not mean that we are to make um, light of difficult circumstances. It doesn't mean that we need to, to look crazy or to look foolish that we're like, so excited that things are horrible in my life right now. 
right? Like that, that our emotions, the things that we feel are innate, they're intuitive, right? Like you don't have to tell someone to be afraid. If they're afraid, they're afraid, right? But we can choose joy. And in choosing joy, what he's saying is this, is it's reminding ourselves of truth, that we don't have to say this horrific circumstance is good. What we say is Jesus is, right? This, this bad situation doesn't have to be the thing that I'm laughing about or smiling about, but that Jesus will sustain me. His mercy is new every morning. He is good. And so we are choosing to rejoice in the truth of who God is, even in the midst of circumstances that are less than ideal. And so he's going to then move quickly into verses 2 and 3. And it's really the first time in this letter where Paul is going to give us um, some of the language that we're used to in some of his letters like Galatians. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So we've remembered in Philippians 1 that Paul has told us that there's some opposition. There's been some murmurings and grumblings within the church, but there's also some opposition. That Philippi is a city that has deep allegiance to Rome. Remember, it's been populated by, by veterans of the Roman military. Um, it's, it's a colony. They have Roman citizenship. And so they are deeply um, aligned with the nation. And so Paul is saying, listen, there, there's, there's going to be those who are going to tell you some things that are not the gospel. And it's going to have shreds of truth in it. It's going to have some truth, but they're going to add to it. And I want you to watch out for these people. And so why is he talking about circumcision here? Right? I, I want to give just a, a, a brief look at this. In Genesis 17, when God has called Abraham to be um, the, the, the father of a nation, and he said, listen, I've, I've chosen you, and you're going to be a blessing to, to the world, to many nations, because they're going to see the work that I'm going to do in you and in your descendants. And, and eventually your descendants are going to be so many that we can't count them. Right? Like the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach, right? Like we're not going to be able to even begin to, to count them. But he starts with this one pagan man in his family and he brings him to trust and to belief and to righteousness, right? It was credited to him because of his belief in God that he was willing to go and to follow. And so in Genesis 17, as God is laying out this covenant saying, I'm going to keep my word, Abraham. He gives them the sign of circumcision. And he says, there's going to be this outward sign that you are marked as mine. Right? That you're going to mark, be marked. And this is going to be a defining characteristic. And so there were those. Now, we, we move forward generations and generations where circumcision has been a defining mark of, of the people of God, of Israel. And now we're in this stage right after, we're in the first 30 years or so after the death of Christ. And their question has been, do non-Jews, do Gentiles need to be marked in the same way in the flesh? Do they need to have circumcision in their life? And so if you go to Acts 15, we see the church is debating this. They're talking about this. They're, they're, they're arguing about, are we going to force the Gentiles to come underneath some of the Jewish law? And there were those who said, yes, we had to, they need to. And then Paul and others are saying, no, 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 wait, brothers, we couldn't keep the law. It was an absolute burden to us that we could not keep. It didn't bring, right, rescue. Jesus has. 
Right? It's by His grace that we're saved. It's not by works. And so we're not going to have Jesus plus. We're just going to have Jesus. And so, right, they decide, yes, that's what we're going to do. There's not going to be forced circumcision on non-Jews who are going to come in to the church, who are going to come in to faith. But there's a group called Judaizers. And right, and Judaizers are those who, who are going to claim faith in Jesus and then are going to want to put the, the, the Jewish law back on and say, we're still going to do that. Right? And so it, it's going to say, it's Jesus plus you got to do this. Right? And that this is problematic. Right? That, that anything Jesus plus, right? Anything we want to add to say, it's Jesus plus this equals salvation is robbing Jesus of his glory. That he is enough, that he is sufficient. Now listen, we we saw last week, obedience is expected of those who are called sons and daughters of the king, right? But that that Paul is going to lean into that grace is sufficient. And so what Paul is telling them is, he's like, listen, look out for those who are literally going to put confidence in their flesh. Literally, they're going to put confidence in that above and beyond Jesus as being sufficient. So why would the church in Philippi need to have this conversation? Because Rome recognized Judaism as a, as a religion, and at this point Christianity is not, right? And there's opposition beginning to stir. Paul's calling them to allegiance in Jesus, not to Nero. Bow your knee to Jesus, not to the king, right? If they were to begin to take on some elements of Judaism... It might save them some opposition. It might save them some persecution. It might save them some difficulty. Right? We saw this as we walked through Hebrews recently. Right? That the church there was going, hey, man, if we just kind of keep Jesus and then come under the, the flag over here, man, all the persecution goes away. And you say, no, 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 don't walk back away from Jesus. Jesus is sufficient. And so this is the conversation that he's having with the church in Philippi. He's telling them, Jesus is enough. It's not Jesus plus. And he's really doing a reversal here in verses 2 and 3. In our culture, listen, the word dog is not super offensive, maybe in some parts, but we are such a pet culture that we kind of hear that. And, you know, like we think of dogs and cats and we just we spend billions on them. Right. It's not like this offensive term. But still to this day in the Middle East, like, people, for the most part, don't have dogs as pets. Like, they're considered filthy. They're, they're, they're gross, right? They're, they're scavengers in the street. Um, and so to call someone a dog is, is offensive. And look what he's saying. He's saying, look out for the dogs. Now, listen, Jews often would call non-Jews, Gentiles, dogs. Right? Like, you're unclean. You're impure. You're the dogs. Now, he is writing to those who are claiming um, circumcision is necessary. And he's saying, no, 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 we're not the dogs. You're the dogs. Now, listen, I know this can sound really petty, right? Like that Paul's like in a, in a fight on the playground, like, you know, whatever you say, so, you know, I'm rubber and you're glue, you know, like, kind of like he's not, he's not doing that. He's saying, listen, they think they're right and they have called you dogs. They're in fact the dogs. They're the ones who are missing out on this. He goes, he continues, who look out for the evildoers, that circumcision at one point would have been a means of righteousness, 
of aligning yourself. And he's saying, but now it has become this thing that if you're putting your hope in the flesh, if you're putting your hope in works, you're actually committing evil because you are not trusting the grace of God. You're not leaning into him. You're trusting your own self and your own ability to find confidence in your, in your own works. And then he says, those who mutilate the flesh. He's like, the work you're doing is damaging. It's not even what they want. And he, look at how he then goes to verse 3. So he says, they're dogs, they're evildoers, and they're mutilators. Verse 3, for we, we are the circumcision. She's saying like, we have become the circumcision of God. We have been grafted in And this is what God has intended. That we are marked by him and marked by his spirit. And Paul's saying, listen, they should know. Because listen, this is Deuteronomy 36, 30 verse 6. And and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Right, that he was telling even the people of Israel, listen, this physical circumcision is not what's going to save you. It's, it's the circumcision of the heart. Right, that what you need is to be turned to me, to be marked as mine. And listen, the giving of the Spirit is the mark, right, that we have been circumcised by God, that we are His, we are marked as His people. And so Paul is saying, listen, if that is not sufficient to you and you want to go back and add some other things on, you are walking away from Jesus. And this is a dangerous place to be. That they should know better. Paul would also write in Romans chapter 2. Verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He's saying, listen, it's important here. Are we going to be marked by religious activity or by the grace of God, the rescue of Jesus? And we're going to say it's sufficient. All right, so he kind of lays out, listen, there's going to be those who are going to say things like this. I'm warning you. I've, I've written you about this before. And now verse 4, he's like, all right, but do you want to play that game for a moment? Do you want to argue that the flesh is sufficient? All right, let's play this game. And listen to what he says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he begins to go through kind of his resume here. I was circumcised on the eighth day. If you go to Genesis 17, it says you're going to be circumcised on the eighth day. All boys of the people of Israel. He's like, I'm, I'm in. This is my nationality of the tribe of Benjamin. Right. Benjamin was one of the two tribes that stayed loyal to the Davidic covenant. Judah and Benjamin. That was it. Right. He's like, I'm not just a part of Israel. I'm a part of one of the faithful tribes. Right. He continues. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Like this is my family's lineage. I'm not just one who's added this on. My family are Hebrews of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Listen, the Pharisees kept the law. They would actually create laws within the law. So that if they did not meet that standard, they'd actually still come under the wider standard of the law. 
right? So they're like narrowing the law down to say, if I can keep this really strict set, right, I'm way overdoing what God's asked. He's like, so I'm, I'm keeping the law to the nth degree. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's like, you can ask. I did what was expected of me. I was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee. I've, I've done it. I accomplished it. And he's saying, listen, it's not enough. It's not sufficient. That my righteousness in this is not enough. So as Paul is walking through his list, I think the question we have to ask then is, what is the list of righteousness that we might try to put forth before God? What are the things that we want to kind of say, yeah, 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 I think Jesus saves us, but it wouldn't hurt if I add just a little to the list. So what is that for us? Is it the church that you attend? Right? That I, well, I attend this specific denomination up against other denominations which have walked away from the faithfulness of God, right? And so you're going to hold that up a little bit. Or I have this theological bent because I have more right answers than you and I believe more right things than you, right? That I have Jesus plus a little. Church, the fact is, is there are those who would believe the fact that you're an American has put you somehow closer to God. Right, like the, the, the mere fact that you were born, right, as an American, the, their nationality. Others who would look at their, their family's lineage and say, well, I've got pastors and, and, and godly people and missionaries in my lineage. Maybe what it is is we have a moment where we have walked an aisle and prayed a prayer, and we look back at that, and our boast and our hope of our salvation is in that moment more so than it is in Jesus. Right, that we can look back at this somewhat defining moment, but what our hope is in is not that Jesus has done a work and that Jesus has secured us and that by his grace that we are saved and belong to him, but it's in that I've done the right rituals. Maybe it's the, in that you were baptized. Maybe it's in the work that you've accomplished. Right, That you can look back to the classes that you have taught, folks that have... Um, been converted under your guidance. Maybe it's simply the intensity in which you believe things, right? That Paul says, look, if you want to get zeal and intensity, I was throwing people in jail, right? Knowing that they were going to be beaten and killed. I was there when Stephen, he's like, I was zealous and intense and it didn't make me right. And we live in a culture right now that tends to say, if I really believe it a lot and if I'm really intense and zealous about it, then that must mean like, I'm right. That it's, that it's sufficient. And so he's, the question for us is, what is it that we might be holding forth and saying, I, I think Jesus is enough, but I want to hold on to some other things as well. All right, so there's some broad ones there. What about me? Some things I've held up as righteousness before, that I've avoided a lot of big sins. Right, I don't have some of these big things in my past that my past is, is pretty pretty clean that I've planted a church right that um, I have a good reputation that I can couch my pride and humility really well right I, I, like if I'm not careful I'll begin to believe that ministry is everything 
But ministry isn't everything. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. And ministry is something we get to do on this side of heaven until we're going to make much of him right for all time. And so there's some things that we're called to in this life, but those aren't primary. Jesus is. And if I'm not careful, I can begin to kind of drift back into believing the things that I've done, the things I've accomplished, the things I've avoided, that that's my righteousness, right? That's me saying, hey, yes, Jesus, but it sure doesn't hurt to add a few things. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong. Look what he says. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he's saying, whatever I've accomplished, and it was much, it's actually loss. It's nothing. It gains me no righteousness. He, continu- he continues, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And not only has he, su- I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Church, in, in Matthew 15, Jesus says this. He says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's saying, Listen, we can look religious and be hypocrites, that we can be displeasing God because we're doing outwardly the right things, and yet our hearts are far from Him. And what Paul is saying is, I did the right religious things, and I was not his. And then he rescued me, and so I'm going to lay all of that aside, because I have the righteousness of Christ now in the fact that I have Jesus. And what he's telling them is, it's not Jesus plus something, it's Jesus, period. That Jesus is sufficient, that he is enough. That his religious behavior had been a dead end, and his pride and his arrogance, right, we're robbing the glory of God to the point that he would say it's rubbish, right? That the things that we do that might be deemed good in the world can be trash, rubbish, filth that dogs would scrounge around in. Do we see them rightly? So I mentioned some of my perceived righteousness. And he's asking, Jeremy, do you see it rightly? Think about a child Right, coming before um, maybe their mom on Mother's Day, right, and they've made um, something out of macaroni, right, and it's not super impressive. And fast forward down the road, and that child has a job of their own, and they've actually been able to save some money, and they buy a nice gift, a nicer gift, from the store from their parent for their mom. Mom may very well look at the the macaroni and like celebrate that far more than the store-bought gift. Why? Because it's going to depend on the kid's heart, right? Because that four-year-old bringing something that looks like trash is actually done out of absolute joy and affection and a treasuring of mom. And it's like, look what I've got for you. And so mom beams and celebrates because she sees it rightly. Versus a gift that was bought in haste and tossed in her direction with very little affection. But would be nicer, right, than the macaroni. Right? Like, do we see things rightly? 
And so I feel like like offering up the righteousness that my life has, right? Like in, in on this moment, it's like, hey, it doesn't look so bad. And then you step into the glory of God and you're like, oh, this is like I'm holding trash, rubbish, filth. I've got nothing to offer. And you're like, you're quickly embarrassed and you're trying to hide it and to get the stench off your hands. And it, right, like the, what we have is Jesus. And any good that we have accomplished is because by his grace, he has poured it forth and allowed us to be a part of it. And so when we walk through judgment, right, and the works of our life, as Paul says, right, like the things that are were, were of us are burned up and the things that would honor God are, are kept as secure. And now they're crowns and jewels and things. We get to lay those down at the feet as worship as the one who allowed us to accomplish anything by his name for our good and for his glory. But if we're holding on to it, thinking we're walking in boldly and confidently, like, check me out, Jesus, we look down and we're covered in filth. We, don't, we have nothing to offer beyond Jesus. So listen to what he will continue here. He says, listen, my boast is in Jesus. I will count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. Right? He, he then continues in verse 9. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Remember, he said, I want you to boast in Jesus. I want you to treasure Jesus. I want you to see the worth and the glory of him. Chapter 1, the call to the church in Philippi had been, walk in a, worthy, uh, in a manner worthy of the glory of Jesus. Right? Like, church, I want you to be on mission. Church, I want you to be unified. I want you to look and smell like the fragrance of God. I want you to reflect the character and the nature of God so that people will be attracted to it. And what are they attracted to? Jesus' humility, right? To his rescue, to the fact that he is worthy. And if we're honest, often the church at large doesn't look like, verse 3, worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus, putting no confidence in the flesh counting everything as loss right the church for a lot of years has looked like those who are a little bit arrogant a little bit snooty kind of prideful got our list of do's and don'ts the things that we're good at the things that you're not good at right that we're going to make sure that you know how right and holy and righteous we are we have our rules and our pride and our activity and what the church can begin to reflect instead of the humility of Christ is this, if, if not careful, is self-confidence instead of grace. Is pride over humility. Is works over dependence. And it's flesh over spirit. And what Paul wants the church at Philippi to be is a correct and healthy and good and obedient reflection of Jesus. Because Jesus is a treasure and he's worthy and he is sufficient and he knows that if we begin to hold on to things and begin to kind of beat our own chest that it hinders worship 
because we're robbing Jesus of glory and it hinders mission because we hold people to a standard that we couldn't ourselves keep, but we're going to pretend like we did. So he gives them the gospel. Look in verses 9 and 10. So I want to gain Christ to the end of eight. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Listen, Jesus was our righteousness. He was the substitute who paid for our sin. And now we are given not just forgiveness of sins, we are given the righteousness of Christ. We get his perfection. So that when we walk before the king of glory, right, he recognizes Jesus and we come in. Because we're covered by him. There's an exchange that has been taken has taken place. He was a substitute on our behalf and then has given us what we did not deserve. Then he continues, right? Not just that he made us right with God, but that he is going to sanctify us. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fact that Jesus is alive, he is still at work in us. Right? He says it's why we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling because this holy God who has rescued us is, is alive and he's working in you to make you into the image of his son, Jesus. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his, in his death. That he gives us this, this hope, right, that we are going to become more and more Christ-like, that Jesus has lived the life that we were meant to. He has died the death that we deserve, and he has beaten our enemies, sin and Satan and death. So the call now is to pursue Jesus still. It's to to continue to work, to continue to follow him, to continue to run after him, that he is better than you think he is this morning. As high and as mighty and as multifaceted as you believe him to be, as much time as you have spent in church, as much time as you have listened to sermons, as much time as you have spent in scripture, as much as you have met, it doesn't matter what you have done. He is better than that. He is deeper than that. He is more than that. And he is beckoning, calling us to know him in this manner. To not just know about him, but to know him. To be in relationship with him. Listen, if I told my kids or my wife once, I love you, I'm good, I think I know you, and just kind of stopped and left it at that without pursuing their hearts any longer. If, if I looked at you as, as church members and as friends and said, hey, we've, we've done that once, I don't need to pursue you any further, you would not feel loved or known or appreciated. In fact, we would drift into difficulty and into calloused relationship, into potentially no relationship. And so we pursue knowing Jesus because we are prone to drift into unbelief. We're prone to drift not to godliness, but into being numb and stale to the things of God. We drift back into trusting our own efforts. And so the closer I get to Jesus, the more rightly I see the righteousness that I would try to bring. But the further I get from Jesus, the better my stuff looks. And I'm like... I think I got something to offer here. So we want to pursue him and, and come after him. We want to trust that he is working in us from one degree of glory to the next. It is not a race. Sanctification is not a race. But he is bringing us from one degree of glory to the next, transforming us little by little by little. Church, Jesus is sufficient. 
He satisfies despite our circumstances. It's why Paul can write from prison. Right? To rejoice. That's where it started. Rejoice in Jesus despite his circumstances. We just finished this week reading The Hiding Place with Carson. The story of Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy as they suffered um, during World War II. Right? And, and, and her sister just saying, hey, we're going to rejoice in the fleas. And Corey's saying, why would we rejoice in the fleas? Right? Like, how could we rejoice in that? And later finding out that they were able to lead folks to faith. They were able to worship and make much of Jesus in this room because the guards wouldn't come in because they didn't want to get the fleas. Right? That in all those circumstances, they were finding joy. How is that possible? It's because Jesus is alive. Because he is satisfying. He is sufficient. He is enough. Justin Martyr in the year 165, as he was being led to his death, said, listen, they can kill us, but they sure can't harm us. What? Right? Like he understood, as Paul says, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Church, there is nothing this world can do to harm us. At most, they take our life. And in taking our life, they send us to Jesus. And so we are allowed to live on mission. We are allowed to live freely and abundantly looking like Jesus, making much of Jesus together. Whether it is legal or illegal. Right? Whether it is praised or whether it is hated. Whether we gain approval or we gain vitriol. Paul is saying, be unified together as we pursue Jesus. And so here's the final thought. And my final will be quicker than Paul's final. I just want to end with this. Do we, do you, do I, do we treasure Jesus? Right, the quick answer obviously is yes. But do we? Right, do we delight in him? Do we rejoice despite all circumstances? And I think the question for us this morning here is this, is would we ask God to give us eyes to see Jesus in this manner? Would he give us eyes to look up and to behold Jesus in this kind of way? With a mind to grasp it, with a heart to ponder and to consider it. Would we ask God to sink this deep within us? That we would see Jesus as worthy and rich and treasure. And then be willing to put in the work of pursuing it. Not because it gains us salvation, but because it gains us more of Jesus. I was reading um, something from John Piper this week. And he talked about becoming satisfied, like eating well of Christ and of his word. And he said, at the end of Thanksgiving, at the end of that meal, you don't push away from the table and go, oh, I'm a little bit hungry, right? You, you push away miserable, right? Like that's, like people are unbuttoning their pants. They're pushing away from the table. And you could literally bring almost any food item in the world. Any delicacy, any great, beautiful thing and lay it before them. And people are going to be like, oh. Right? Because what are you saying? I couldn't eat another bite. You've eaten to like, you're you're beyond full. So he's like, "If, if we pursue Jesus in this manner, if we pursue his word in this manner, that we are feasting on him. When sin comes our way, it doesn't look appetizing at all. It looks distasteful no matter how it's presented. When the, when, the, when the entanglements of the world come along, we see them for what they are because we have feasted and we are satisfied on the things of Christ. And so this week, would we ask him 
to give us eyes to see Jesus as something to pursue in this manner, to see him as trustworthy and good and sufficient. We ask him to sink that deep within us, to be that type of people in that church for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we, that we confess that we don't see you um, as the treasure that you are. God, that we have, and in moments we do, but God, that we are so often distracted. We are so often um, entranced by, by lesser things. God, that we miss you. Father, I confess that I do. I get busy doing things for you rather than seeking you. God, would we be a people who would treasure you? God, who would love you, who would sink our teeth into your word, who would want to know you, not just things about you, but to walk in pursuit and relationship because you have first pursued us. You have first loved us. You are Emmanuel, God, with us. So, Father, would you bring to mind sin that needs to be confessed and repented of in these moments? God, of things that are not sin, but are just lesser things that take up far too much of our time. And God, even in this moment, would you be leading those who don't know you to trusting in you? Not in their own ability, not in their own knowledge, not in their own righteousness, but in Jesus alone, period. Call their name. Will they hear you whispering, saying, you're mine. I'm bringing you into the family. Father, would our worship be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.